You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, and we're going to talk about what we've learned in 2021 over the course of the 35 interviews that we've done with different scholars and authors, um, people from Montana and from far beyond the borders of the state, right? Yes, yes. We're excited to kind of do a recap of our year of 2021 and talk about all the different podcast episodes Uh, Maybe not hitting every single one of them, but kind of talking about what Nancy and I have learned as we've really dug into the research and the publications of these folks that we've interviewed. Every time we interview someone, we try to read as much as we can about what they've done, what their research is. If they have a book, we read the book. If they have research papers, we try to find as many research papers that we can that are accessible for us to read, and we dive in. We dive in deep. Yep, and we draw our questions from that, from from their research. Um, And sometimes from other... um, interviews they've given with other folks. So we really try to do our our background. And we we have loved all of the interviews that we've done. So we're definitely not picking favorites here. But we have sort of grouped a few together that we want to talk about because we, we can't go into each one. But we thought we'd highlight a few that if you haven't heard them, might be worth having a listen. And um, if you missed one, maybe having a second listen or looking back into our archive. So so one of the first groups, Crystal, that we both sort of thought about was the four different indigenous scholars that we interviewed um, in 2021. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say their names, and then maybe we could just say a little bit about each one. Okay. So we interviewed Aaron Brin, who is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, the TIPO at uh, Crow Nation. Uh, Shane Doyle, Dr. Shane Doyle, who's a good friend, a member of the Extreme History Board, and a scholar himself. Dr. Joe Watkins, who's an archaeologist and was just recently, I think up until this last year, the president of the Society for American Archaeologists, um, the second only Native person to hold that position. And Marsha Small, who's also a good friend of ours, who um, has gotten her degree here at Montana State University. And Marsha is also a board member of the Extreme History yes, Project. Yes, our newest one, yes, right? Yes, yes, yep. I know. We're excited about that. Yeah. So let's first think back to Aaron Brin's, um, the interview we did with him. He had talked about, he had given a lecture um, earlier that you had seen on going to visit Crow War Shields. Mm-hmm old historic war shields, the actual 
artifacts themselves that were held in a museum. Which museum was that? It was the Field Museum in Chicago. And so he had made a trip with others to go see these ward shields. And so we talked with him a little bit about that during the podcast. We talked about a lot of other things, too. But that really... Um, hit us both, I think, in the heart, his description of those war shields and yeah. his experience going into this archival area and the curators pulling these war shields out for them to look at, to interact with. And and them actually knowing whose war shields these were. And then mm-hmm. that experience for him sounded incredibly powerful. And, and that experience is kind of part and parcel of doing what we call part of the umbrella term indigenous archaeology, where we're really looking beyond um, merely describing an artifact, but we're talking about how people engage with these items that are passed down, preserved from their ancestors. And so Aaron Brin is bringing indigenous archaeology um, to the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and working with all sorts of folks there and um, Archaeology out of um, out on the Crow Reservation, and so that was really exciting. And also, he's incredibly funny and has his own podcast. Yeah, so we talked about that a little bit yeah. too. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then for me, Joe Watkins was another interview that I think is really worth listening to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've um, had that many opportunities to hear him speak, so it was really fun to have that kind of engagement with him, where it was one on one, also very personal, talking mm-hmm. about what he did to get one of his degrees was um, replicating what it would take to build by hand a pit structure, a pit house that ancestors in the Southwest would have lived in. And, and then he lived in it. And then he lived in it. (laughs) And and then I think though, it wasn't necessarily something that um, his committee was all that excited about because the the long term mm. project would have been let it naturally decay then and then have people dig it up later and learn something about how how these sites decay and fall apart so that as archaeologists we can kind of do that reverse yeah. you know um, understanding of things but he yeah. also had a lot to say about indigenous archaeology and yeah. and bringing that into. Um, more of the mainstream of archaeology that's done within the Society of American Archaeology. Right, right. It was great to have him as the president of the SAA for that term because he really did highlight indigenous archaeology um, during that time. And and so we talked with him a little bit about that and the challenges of that for him. So it was just a great interview. Uh, he's a, he's yeah. just a lovely person yeah. to, to learn from. Yeah. Um, we also interviewed... Um, Marcia Small, who her research has involved boarding schools and the burials found around them, cemeteries, some unmarked graves, right. and the the pain associated with boarding school period in general for so many Native American tribes, and and then this realization in this country as well as more recently in the news in Canada that there are so many unmarked mm-hmm. burials of children who died while they were at boarding school. Right. And we don't really have records or markers, but her research involved um, using ground-penetrating radar, using a non-destructive archaeological method, a more high-tech method, to try to get a sense of where a lot of those remains might have been at a particular boarding school in Oregon. Is that, mm-hmm. Do I have that right? Right, yeah. right. 
the Tuama um, boarding school in Oregon. And so she she has done a lot of this research and a lot of this work and is writing her um, PhD dissertation on this right now. And so she's just enveloped in it. And it's such a hard topic. It's a hard history. It's a hard history. It's a very hard history. But an important one. Mm-hmm, and it's so important. And it's been left out for so long, especially this this aspect that she's talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think having um, a Native scholar doing this work is so important. It mm-hmm. brings a completely different level and many more layers of understanding and meaning in such an important way. And I think that it's wonderful to see the field changing and making room for, you know, what that what are not considered traditional archaeological research and and topics and reports, and really recognizing, though, that this is the direction it has to go if it's going to be valued in the present and make sense for people right. today. Right. And Marsha and her colleagues are really pushing to have better protocols adhered to when people are looking at these boarding school cemeteries and at this boarding school history in general. And um, and they are really having some success in that. that uh, one thing we talked about with Marsha was that a lot of the information about these children that are buried in these boarding school cemeteries is lost. And I and and it is probably not lost, but it has not been able to be found. And so I think that there's been a push to really ask some of the entities, governmental en- entities, um, church entities, to find these records. And now in the news just last week, we are seeing that some of those records are surfacing. So I think that's so wonderful for these families who have lost their children for so long. They will be able to repatriate those those children back home. So it's hard work, yeah. but it's it, it in so many ways can bring some closure um, and some relief amidst the grief. So mm-hmm. that's tough work, but we're mm-hmm. we're so um, honored that she was willing to talk with us about it right. and that she's continuing to do that. And we like to support all of that kind of work. It's so important, and it doesn't always, um, in all its um, different elements, get out into the public. Um, so people aren't always aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our, our fourth Indigenous scholar, Shane Doyle, probably the one we personally know the best, um, know and love. And uh, Shane Doyle talks a lot about medicine wheel country. That's his term for sort of this high plains in the Rocky Mountain West. And he has been involved in the... Um, the testing that was done on the remains of the Anzic boy in, involved in all of that science, but in also discussing those issues with all of the tribes um, in and around Montana. And he's also um, been working with folks who are doing archaeology and research in Yellowstone Park and trying to um, retell the story of the birth of Yellowstone National Park Uh, as it not being an empty space that didn't contain Native peoples who regularly moved through those areas and used resources in those areas and spent time and seasons in those areas. And, And Shane sort of discussed with us some great ideas about how to make that presence more visible and palpable to really anybody now who goes to the park, which we really need because people go right to see like the geysers and the wildlife. And there's not a lot 
to show mm -hmm. uh, that Native people were there. It, There's it, not a lot of interpretation of the Native um, people, Native nations that were there, Indigenous nations that mm -mm. that had been there th for thousands and thousands of years. And so Shane and a lot of other folks are really pushing the park, especially in this next year in 2022, because it is the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone National Park to really include some more interpretation. Right. Now is the time. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're hoping um, that research that Doug McDonald has done about so much of the history around Yellowstone Lake and other places that there's so many ways in which it, it the, the native presence and use of those areas can be highlighted and, and not just from historic period stories that we're more familiar with, but really those deeper histories mm -hmm. um, and understand what it took to really create a park, which meant taking land, putting right. a border around it, and mm -hmm. then and then making it illegal mm -hmm. for people who had always used those lands to go there. And mm -hmm. um, and and just the parks themselves are are fascinating. And we've learned about our national parks in a much more in-depth way by a couple of our other folks that we interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so Laurel Angel and Scott Carpenter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We interviewed Laurel Angel. Um, and she grew up in a national park. She grew up in Yosemite National Park, she which was indeed. so fun to hear her reflections on that. Yeah. And boy, it would have been kind of, it would have been amazing to grow up in a national park, but also kind of hard as well. So yeah, that was so, your backyard. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what a backyard. But I know. So she talks a little bit about that in her podcast, which was wonderful. And, but she also kind of talks about some of these ideas of conservation. She really, that's what she's studying with that's her, her passion right now right mm -hmm. right and so she's really talking she really talked to us about con the conservation movement and where it is ethically within all of this milieu that we've been talking about with Shane Doyle mm -hmm. um and then we kind of continued that conversation with Scott Carpenter. Right. And so um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that conversation that we had more broadly. Yeah. I mean, Laurel, I think it's so interesting. She she went on to become a park ranger um, at the Grand Canyon and then eventually went back to get her legal degree. But I think her passion always being the landscape and conservation, it started to become very clear to her that so many voices had been left out of that history during the 20th century in particular when we had civil rights movement and all these other things going on. Conservation was very white and very male. And mm -hmm. and so she's really looked at the intertwining of that history, and that's her doctoral research. And it is so funny because our good friend, archaeologist Scott Carpenter, he has lived in Yosemite National Park as yeah. the park archaeologist um, at two different periods of his life. And so he, he got a, a, a time when he was younger and then I think within the last 10 years, he spent a good chunk of the last 10 years oh, there, right? Yeah, about the, the last five years, and he just retired from the um, Park Service Yeah, and just so this he, last year. he was. It was so wonderful to hear him talk about his experiences there and then... At Yosemite. At Yosemite yeah. itself, and that how now... So Laurel left there kind of in her childhood. Yeah. Scott's kind of bookending that with a similar um, discussion about... In, in that case in Yosemite, there was literally a, a slaughter and a whole-scale removal of people who were camped living in the area of Yosemite and um, and the, the other park that attaches to that. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But Scott um, is talking about now how there's such a different way instead of 
talking with the tribes and telling them what you're doing and inviting them to comment, you know, then they move towards, well, you know, asking them to come and see and be more involved in creating exhibits. And now he says they're really just turning over to them a whole space within the park that's still part of the park, but it becomes a space where those Native folks have the right, those descendants of those tribes have the right to say what's going to happen there and present their own selves, their own history in their own way. And that was so moving to hear how within Yosemite, this change over 100 years of finally letting people have the space to have their own voice and to not have to do it through the lens of the Park Service or the U.S. government's history. They have their own history to tell that's tied to that place. And so that, that I think, was very powerful, both Scott and Laurel hearing the ways in which um, I think our own national park systems are moving to be more inclusive mm-hmm. in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to talk a little bit about some, a couple other people that we talked to who, Meg Conkey was one of them. She's an archaeologist. And she was someone we were very excited to get on the show because she's somebody we've both heard talk and read about for, I mean, ever since I started in archaeology. So for years. She's definitely been. She's a grandma of archaeology. Right. Yeah. She she has been someone who um, many women have looked up to in archaeology Mm -hmm. and still look up to in her work. And she really talks about gender in archaeology and feminism in archaeology. And so we had a wonderful conversation with her. And I feel like sometimes these podcast interviews are kind of oral histories yeah. with some of these people who I think are so critically important to their fields, like Meg Conkey. Yeah. You know, and we have the opportunity, we had the opportunity to ask questions that um, hadn't been asked before. So I really yeah. think it's important. I really think that Just these interviews Just asking how are, people got started and how, yeah. because when, when we were introduced to her, it was all about here's the woman, her and Joan Jarrow, who really were like, whoa, there's so much bias. There's so much androcentric bias in archaeology that we couldn't even see it, you know. And, 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 then, and then the ways they were able to look at data differently, collect new lines of data, ask new questions, mm-hmm. and, and especially for the Paleolithic period, way, way back. So we don't have any written records. You know, we're talking 40,000 years ago in Europe, 20,000 years ago in Europe. It's it's amazing what we know now and the roles of, of women and men and how we understand that period so mm-hmm. much better. Just fascinating, but you're right. I think, but hearing their human story of how mm-hmm. they came to do the work that they did mm-hmm. and the decisions they made and the reactions, that I think is the fun part of the podcasts yeah. um, too, to listen to. Yeah. Another woman we talked to was Adrian Mayer. Yeah. And uh, she's written a few books, and she's uh, not an archaeologist, but she writes about archaeology, and she wrote about the Amazons. And so we had a wonderful conversation that with her. That was so much fun. She dove deep into the history to look at what are the stories about Amazons, where did they start, what are the commonalities, when did we decide that that was just myth? Or could it possibly be that these new uh, findings um, uh, on the steppe area, you know, in Eurasia are, are actually um, in burials women, 
buried with armor, with horses, and that now that they have the technology to do the DNA, mm-hmm. they're finding that many they assumed were male were actually female. Right, because she they al- thought they were male warriors. Yes, yeah. but they're really female they're warriors. They're really female warriors, yeah. so they existed, but she also, she busted a lot of myths yeah. about, you know, having to cut off a breast in order to shoot a bow (laughs) and and a whole bunch of others I can't remember now. But that is a wonderful podcast and very rooted in wonderful academic research. Yes, yes. And um, before we move on to um, another another grouping of people who I think really – do a lot to change our understanding of the past and the voices. I just want to give to a shout out um, uh, to Laura Maklem and the, the her book Mudlarking. Yes. So she, we were so fortunate to come across this book and to be able to interview her. She's over in London and she does mudlarking along the Thames, the tidal river that goes in and out. And at different times, whenever where the tide is, you can go along the exposed banks and there is stuff from the Bronze Age or earlier Early. in the Paleolithic yeah. all the way up to recent times. And you find all kinds of amazing treasures and you must have a permit in order to keep any of those things and she's just done amazing research on the objects she's found mm-hmm. and cataloged and and kept and wrote a book about it uh, i think she also has a facebook page she does and my sister who lives over in london um took an archaeology course at oxford and had a chance to also go mudlarking so oh, that was fun. so fun <laughs> so fun that's wonderful and um I follow her on Instagram, um, Laura, and she just found a sword hilt. Oh, gosh. And it is probably 16th century. This is since we interviewed Yes, this just her. happened like last oh. week she found this when she was mudlarking. Wow. So, you know, they, they do find amazing things. And, of course, all these artifacts are out of context right. um, because this is a, a tidal river. So it kind of, you know, they kind of swish could've around in there. Could have been from anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So it could have been from anywhere. But it's so fascinating. But then trying to do the research mm-hmm. of how it, to give it some context. Yes. I think that's that is an amazing part. So that was, that was fascinating to hear all about also just that activity going on in London and the laws surrounding that and, and just the excitement of what you might find on any given day. Yeah. 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 And then we talked to, um, Taya Miles. Oh yeah. And Taya Miles is a historian who recently wrote a book called All That She Carried. And this book was just, um, Mm. so important to me this year and to Mm. many other people who have read it. And it's just an amazing book. And that was just an amazing conversation with Taya. We really um, spent a lot of time um, talking with Taya. I think we talked for like maybe an hour and a half that day. I don't know. It was a long interview. Her history was on, she, she hadn't planned on necessarily coming across that artifact which was a it's a flower sack is that right yeah. that has been embroidered and was passed down and and it was from a, a slave mother given to her daughter and and then it went on to the granddaughter and is it was that right? given to her daughter when her daughter was being sold away from her um into another um enslaved in another family and so she was being sold away and so this mother gave this sack full of these items to her daughter just a few things she probably had time to put in including a lock of hair um pecans Mm -hmm. um a few other things and to to 
hear how Taya was able to uncover mm-hmm. such a history and to contextualize what that mother who she might have been, given where this cloth came from, and then how it got passed around and traced out. And she was able to give us a sense of who these people were and a full history of people who normally we wouldn't get much of a glimpse of in the historical record. Mm-hmm. is incredibly moving, but also just her research methodology is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So it's it's amazing to talk to her. And mm-hmm. and that I think that podcast is is one of the ones where I would be assigning it in classes yeah, if I was definitely, teaching. Definitely. Yeah. We also talked to Anthony Woods. Um Anthony is the former intern of Extreme History Project. He has gone off to do amazing things and has written a book on his master's thesis, which... <laughs> I, I really don't know how many people do that. I don't that know was astonishing. if anyone does that, but and, he did it. And while well, he also, like, had a baby. Yes. You know, I mean, not, well, I mean, had, his wife had a yes. baby. But yes, together they're raising a baby. I mean, that's astonishing. And... Um, Oh, his research is fascinating. Yeah, and so his book is called Black Montana. And so we talked to him about the um, the research he did for this book, but also the themes of this book. It was wonderful. And he's really uncovering the voices of people who have been left behind, who have been um, purposely covered. And were, he really talked about how uh, the black community in Montana was very strong, and there was a lot of um, black members of the communities in Helena, Montana, Great Falls, Montana, Bozeman, Montana, all these towns where you don't really think of um, historic black communities, but they were there and he found them and he wrote about them. So it was a great book. He addresses that question of why we have less diversity in those places today Mm -hmm. than we did in the past. We actually had far more diverse places. And when we get to this period after Reconstruction ends, so it's this myth that you didn't have African-Americans coming out and settling the West and being outside and being outdoors. There were so many ways in which they were trying to make a life here. And then there were not institutions that could support them staying. And and there were institutions that actually made it impossible for them to Mm -hmm. stay and they had to go look other places. Um, so you had all this movement of people. And it's a it's a very moving story. It, mm-hmm. it uncovers a lot of the issues, the ongoing racial issues and tensions that came out of the Civil War right out here to the West and in Montana in particular. So that, that book is amazing, and I encourage people to listen to it, um, but to also get the book. Right. Fantastic. Right. And then um, Kelly Dixon, we talked to her as well. Oh, she's, she's an a archaeologist. Favorite. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. And what a fun conversation That's that was. That's like a roller coaster yeah. ride. And it was like a roller It was like we went from one topic to the next to the next. But one topic we talked about in there that was so interesting was her archaeological research and excavation of a um, a place in Virginia City, Nevada yes. called the Boston Saloon. And this was a saloon that was built by an African-American man. Man. And um, there was a lot of myth busting in Kelly's work. Tons. It was amazing. Um, this man moved out, and he had enough money to to get a saloon started. After yeah, I think he was shoe shining for a little bit, yeah. and then boom, started a saloon. He must have been good at what he was doing. Um, and then his saloon, compared to others that mm-hmm. they excavated in the area, it had nicer crystal, better cuts of meat. It was the mm-hmm. fancier 
place in town. It was the fancier place to in hang town. out. Yeah. But if you looked at the historical records, like newspaper accounts and other historical documents that they looked at, you would never see that no. distinction. You would never know that that um, Boston saloon was an uppercut to some of these other German-American yep. saloons and, you know, just American saloons. It would have been the preferred place yeah. um, if you were traveling through that area. And just just the ability to, again, post-Civil War, get out there and get this all started. I mean, just what what resources people had and what they could draw on in and of themselves and and um, to be able to go out into a completely new area. We don't have as many of those histories. We think of it as these, mm-hmm. you know, Euro-Americans being brave and going out west in their wagons on the trail. But you had so many African-Americans and, and other people from um, other backgrounds also have these amazing stories. And mm-hmm. it's so fun to tell them. And there's no one better than Kelly Dixon to yes. tell that kind of story because <laughs> I think that was her storyteller. <laughs> that was her. Um, I think it, it was, was her, her thesis, men, yeah. and then she um, she turned it into a book, and she says she wants to revisit the book because there's all sorts of things. I think we talked about yeah, that, yeah. but man, that woman has so much to teach the world. Yes. Um, yeah, that was yes. super fun to talk to her. And then we wanted to talk about three of her students. <laughs> oh yeah, because <laughs> we've we you know Kelly That's Dixon right. is a professor at the University of Montana, and so she really has. Um, lit a fire, I think. Yeah, I lit a fire under some of these students. And these students have started doing some of this research research as well. And so we talked with Chris Merritt, who was a student of Kelly Dixon. Now he's gone on and has a career of his own as the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Officer for Utah. Mm -hmm. But back in Montana, when he was still a student at U of M, he was doing a lot of archaeology of historic Chinese communities. And he's continued that research into Utah. And he now has been helping with a big project along the railroad line in Utah. Um, They've been excavating this town called Terrace, which is now a ghost town. And there was a historic Chinese community in Terrace. And so what's so cool about that work that he's doing there is he's working with the descendant community, oh, right. the Chinese Workers, the Historic Chinese Workers Association. I don't think I have that quite right, but um, you get the gist. Exactly. <laughs> um, descendant community who still live in Salt Lake City, and Utah. And they're helping sponsor this. They're helping to um, understand and interpret. They are so excited for somebody to be uncovering, because there was quite a large community there yeah. of um, Chinese who were working and built that town and worked there. Um, and it and it's, I think, so amazing to have those connections to the present and to see how important these histories are to people yeah. and how they have been lost in lots of ways. So we're not really getting a true understanding of how the West was built until we're getting folks like so many of these that we've interviewed. So mm-hmm. Chris is amazing, and Nikki Manning and Kate Gonzalez both doing work um, kind of in urban Missoula and Mm -hmm. and looking at red light districts, issues for women, um, the Chinese district, um, you know, communities there. And they told us some amazing stories and talked about some amazing artifacts they found. And so that just all kind of dovetails with the kind of um, archaeology that Kelly Dixon kind of has has um, brought uh, to students through teaching at Missoula, just to tell the the stories of um, those voices that have been left out, do it through material culture, mm-hmm. and and really use the historical record as well. Mm-hmm. So those two things give us a much fuller picture. But you have to be more 
clever about the way you go about finding those right. records. Right. Yeah. Thank goodness we have archaeology to help us because oftentimes historical documents tell a very um, different story, mm-hmm. um, tell a very biased, biased story. story, depending so, on who's telling it. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, we talk about that with Kelly quite a bit is that bias. Mm. And, you know, even us as researchers have bias and so we have to always check that we always have to be careful of that and she talked a lot about that in her podcast as well so um that those those podcasts were wonderful those were all fun and they and if you're interested in that type of historical archaeology and these untold stories i i highly recommend chris merritt nikki manning and kate gonzalez and um kelly dixon Anthony's is an amazing history um, as well. And Taya Miles is a phenomenal one that also does bring that artifact to life and the contents Mm -hmm. that were in it in a whole new way. So we we Mm -hmm. recommend listening to those if you haven't heard them already. Mm -hmm. But then I have to mention (laughs) two of my favorites. Yes. yes. That involve deep time. We go way (laughs) back for these ones. So because I am part of this podcast too, we sometimes (laughs) go far way back into the um, prehistoric record. So excited about Matthew Bennett, part of the team that uncovered the footprints uh, human footprints at White Sands, as well as sloth and mammoth and all of those, and and pushed back the presence of humans in the Americas to this well-dated context of human footprints that goes back beyond 20,000 years ago. So, so this is some of the most uh, securely dated evidence that humans had crossed into the Americas, perhaps even before these big ice sheets closed. So Mm -hmm. this is much farther back, and it's going to generate a whole bunch of new questions. I'm sure more research to help substantiate this. But um, we are talking that maybe humans were um, in the American continents living alongside mammoth and giant sloth for tens of thousands of years, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. much longer than anyone suspected. Right. Well, we've always suspected it, but now we're having some more evidence to support it. Right. So, right. Yeah. Way before Clovis. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then my other my other favorite deep tide one is with um, Dr. William Kimball, Bill Kimball, who's absolutely an amazing paleoanthropologist. I think I remember him inviting us actually to the Hadar site yeah, in Ethiopia he did. someday, maybe after this latest civil war has ended. Yeah, but yeah. his uh, expertise in Australopithecines and the transition to the beginning of our species, um, Homo, Homo habilis, he um, he's, can take um, a topic that could become dry as bone dust, and he brings it all to life yes. with his understanding of the anatomy and what we can learn about um, these beings that walked on two legs all over Africa, some of them with much smaller brains than us, but much bigger brains than apes, and trying to reconstruct what their lives were like, how they were adapting, and, and what were the possible reasons and pathways that led some of them to evolve into us. Right. It was fascinating. I learned so much in that conversation. And it was so interesting to read his research and to see what he was, um, he and his colleagues have um, come to with their their excavations. It was just fascinating. I loved it. I loved every bit of that. It was really fun. It was a long one. That was a long one. It was a long one. It was a two-hour conversation. I just (laughs) couldn't cut it off. There were so many questions. And he gives such wonderful um, explanations. It would be such fun to take a class with him. um, yeah, it really he's would. mentor for my good friend, Dr. Shara Bailey, too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's just a wonderful person. So most recently, um, 
we talked about the Alamo, Forget the Alamo, the book mm-hmm. out that Chris Tomlinson is one of the authors on. And it also reminded me of our discussion in some ways with Michael Punk. Yeah. He he wrote the novel um, Ridgeline. And those are two different men that have authored two different topics, but I kind of link them together because both of them are allowing us to go back to a time in history about something we thought we knew a lot about and really give it a whole different voice with the new information that we have. So Michael Punk, Ridgeline is about the battle. It's about the Fetterman battle, and which took place in 1866. And am I gonna? Am I right on that? I think we're just gonna I think say we're gonna yes. Say close. We're gonna say yeah. close. And I mean, but he yeah. gives such voice to all the characters, to a native yeah. perspective, to to women who would have been at the at the the camp yes. um, with soldiers in the fort. So right. many different layers of understanding these complex, complicated engagements that were going on in the 1860s when we still had so much. Um, warfare battles engaging and and people being um native people being um confined to reservations and what all this meant on so many levels to people um their livelihoods their identity their interactions with other tribes um Mm -hmm. so much there that ends up you end up walking away with a much different understanding Mm -hmm. of that history and and forget the alamo that book kind of also did the same thing, but in a different way. Yeah. I mean, Michael Punk's uh, was a novel. Ridgeline is a novel. And he's able to bring in all those different voices, like you were talking about, Nancy. But, you know, a lot of the the indigenous voices that haven't been part of that conversation before, part of that story before, Mm -hmm. um, in the way that he presented it. And he he worked very closely with a lot of indigenous scholars and and, um, descendants so he could really make sure he was trying to honor, you know, these perspectives and, and not um, assume, you right. know, um, from from his own perspective. And he's so careful with that material, mm-hmm. but it's written so beautifully. And the audiobook is really good, too. Yeah, so I listened to it, yeah. and it's read by a native gentleman whose name is Tatanka Means. Yeah. And that was, I really liked listening to it in that way. I thought that was I thought that was wonderful. Amazing. And then they actually had a woman do the, and the, the woman, voices yep, for the funeral. Right. So it, yeah. it made such a difference, too, yeah. and it brings the story to life in a wonderful way. So Literally if you're traveling somewhere, you like audiobooks, yeah. that's um, a really beautiful choices that they made there yeah. to do that. And then Forget the Alamo is not a novel. It's... Um, it, it's a basically a, a history of a history. Yeah. <laughs> is what, is yeah. kind of what Chris Tomlinson... Like a historiography. It's yeah. a historiography of this time. And he talks a little bit about the Alamo, the, the, Al, the, the Battle of the Alamo at the very beginning of the book. But then really the book fo- focuses on the myth of the Alamo, yeah. how this crazy myth just... Um, took shape after, right? In the years after, it kind of, and his book goes almost up to present. And and people got yeah. left out of the whole story, yeah. and other people who really didn't do things became turned into heroes and yeah. mythologized yeah. in such ways. And and there's so much strange controversy. And he says, really, there's no controversy among the historians who, you know, over 20 years ago had had gone deep into 
archival records in both the U.S. and in Mexico and, and really kind of sorted out the story that that battle at the Alamo was kind of a precursor to the Civil War. It was really about slavery. And there's really no argument there among historians, but boy, sure is there ever an argument yeah. <laughs> in popular culture. So right. that then that right. whole mythologizing, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, so we highly recommend you listen to that interview because yeah. it was... It, it kind of blew us both away. I yeah, think, and you gotta you gotta find out why Phil Collins is involved in right. that whole mix too. So <laughs> exactly. we'll just leave that teaser out there. Yeah. So you know another another person that we talked to on the podcast um, was Marsha Fulton, and Marsha we talked with her kind of about the origin story of the Extreme History Project. Oh, yeah. And you know our mission is to make history relevant. And so we really talked about with her about that and why that's important. And that kind of leads me to the next podcast that we um, dived into with Mary Murphy. Mm-hmm. And so Mary Murphy is a professor who Nancy and I both have had. And she, Mary has really been um, a mentor to both of us, a mentor to so many people. So many, yeah. And so we talked to her about a lot of different things on the podcast. But at the end of the podcast, we said, Mary, why is history important? Right. And she really summed it up beautifully. And I just want to read some of her words because I think her words are really important. I'll read some and you can read some, Nancy. Okay, so here's what Mary Murphy said. And you can go back and listen to this in her own words. But um, I just want to reiterate what she said. She says, quote, at this moment in our lives, when the country is so fractured with ideological lines, where the whole notion of, quote, real fact comes into question, this is a really important time to take history seriously. The appeal of history for all of us is these wonderful stories. But good historians tell the stories based on the most accurate records they can find. The first rule is to be true to your sources. Um, Be true to all those people as best you can. Do not invent their past for some present purpose. Studying history is a way to be ethical. That um, that is a really important value today, being ethical. Studying history is important because it shows us at every point in time, life is complicated. Mm-hmm. How many times have we heard about <laughs> the good old days or when America was great? But if you look back, every generation has faced different challenges. People want to find some comfort in thinking about the past and the present as black and white. But if you study history, it's just not. People are irrational. Lives are chaotic. And so, end quote. So that's one thing that Mary said that really just stood out to me. And I loved her the way that she said that. But she went on to say something even more important. Nancy, take it away. Yeah, I I, I loved where she was going with all of this because... Um, she she really knows what it is to study history, and she knows how you have to get into understanding the mindsets of all the different people you're going to be encountering and how they're interacting. And um, you do have to have that imagination and that empathy, and it builds empathy. And I think the best historians really make us understand the complexity of all those things. So there was no easier time in the past, and there was no, oh, he or she was just a man of their time, and, th- and they didn't know any better we have all the evidence that they always knew there were alternative opinions, there were different sides, there were people who held slaves, and there were abolitionists, and they all were making their arguments out there together. Um, and so when we when we were really kind of getting back to this idea of, um, but why is history important now? Why is it important in the present? This is what Mary said. People think of science as hard. 
but they don't think of the humanities as hard. Science can cure cancer, but the humanities can cure racism. And how many more people are affected by racism than cancer? That statement, I thought, was incredibly powerful and insightful because it gives us all the relevance we would ever need to make the case that history is so important and history can be healing. It can be emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and physically healing. So there's so many good reasons for us to keep doing this work and keep interviewing the people who are doing phenomenal research and bringing these histories, sometimes these hard histories, but bringing them out so that we can understand where we are. And as everybody says, if you don't know your history, you'll repeat those worst parts of it. You have to understand it and know it fully in order to actually learn from it. Um, so that kind of brings us to to a, a discussion of a topic that we've we've heard quite about, I think, in the media, which, yeah. which is critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about it on each of our podcasts um, in one way or another. Yeah, really. You know, sometimes we name it, sometimes we don't, but. Every single podcast that we've done this year has really touched on this in some form or fashion. And so critical race theory defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is a group of concepts such as the idea that race is sociological rather than biological designation and that racism pervades society and is fostered and perpetuated by the legal system used for examining the relationship between race and the laws and legal institutions of a country and especially the United States. And that's from Miriam Webster. Yeah. So I, I think what we've seen in so much of the research that has been powerful that we've seen people do um, and present and get out there into the world is that so much of understanding critical race theory is is just understanding that there is bias inherent in a lot of our our legal institutions, cultural institutions, politics, so that people of different ethnic backgrounds, people who come from different places, don't all have the same opportunity. They it is it is baked into the system that they are excluded from owning land or not able to vote or don't have any basic human rights or not able to intermarry certain ways, not able to hold. so there's there's this idea that our country is designed to be equitable, that everybody should have the same opportunity. Critical race theory is looking at all the ways in which, from its inception, though we held that ideal in this nation, we also built institutions that prevented people from having those same opportunities. And to just understand that so we can understand in the better why we see the structures that we do today, where whole groups of people who maybe share some ancestry um, all have lower rates of home ownership, all have um, certain issues with disease, all have certain, um, you know, constant things that are not the fault or related to their ethnic background. They're related to these institutions that kept them from accessing the same opportunities that other people might have had. And, And that's something that we've seen in 
pretty much all of these, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, stories Every that we've engaged episode. with. Yeah. yeah. Who gets to tell the history? Mm-hmm. Who gets to write it? Who gets to be excluded from it? Um, all of those things are also part of that. Um, but I think understanding the legal infrastructure and the way in which um, bias by race has been built into that from the beginning mm-hmm. is so important because we're just still striving today to have a better legal system that helps us get away from that. Right. So uh, we just wanted to really, um, since we've talked about critical race theory throughout almost every single podcast, we w- just really wanted to end this podcast and end our season, our 2021 season, really defining it and explaining why it is important and why we think it is important and why we think these interviews from this last year are so significant. Absolutely. We didn't mention every single interview because we had 35 of them. So (laughs) we encourage you, if you haven't listened to all 35 from this year, go back, listen to all of them. They're all amazing in their own way. And then, of course, we had our first season, which was in 2020. We started in September of 2020. And we had some phenomenal interviews uh, in that first season as well. So go back, listen to season one, listen to season two. And then we are going to take a little break over the next couple weeks during the holiday season. And then we're going to come back with season three and watch out because season three is going to be spectacular. We've got a lot of exciting people lined up. So we're, we're so excited. We will miss you guys over the holidays. Um, but when we get back, we'll be right back in it with lots of fascinating interviews with some new folks um, on new topics. So yes. we're really excited. So and be if, safe and um, be well. Yeah. And if you... If you've loved these interviews, if you've loved these podcast episodes, we really would love your support. And oh, we so would. Yes. We be, don't want to leave without asking not for wanna, a little bit of support. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we could use your financial support to keep this podcast going. And if you feel so inclined, if you would go to the Extreme History Project website and donate on that website, that will go to support, in part, the Dirt on the Past podcast. So the Dirt on the Past podcast is a podcast of the Extreme History Project. So please um, think about sending us a couple bucks, $5, $10, yep, $500. And send us your ideas if there's if there's a yeah. topic you know about that you'd like to hear more about or that you know someone is doing great research. We are always excited to hear from our listeners. Right. Yes. Yeah. And if you can't support us financially, You can always support us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really helps us as well. All right. So So happy holidays. And Crystal, I will next see you in the new year in 2022. Okay. um, Thanks so much, Nancy. And hopefully all of you come back to learn more about the dirt dirt on the past. We also wanted to say a big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks so much to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to John Chadwell for help us in getting the podcast out in the world. Thanks so much to everybody who makes this podcast possible and Happy New Year.